Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with Chin Sun Lee, whose amazing debut novel is Upcountry. Sun Lee is truly a citizen of the world. She's the child of North Korean exiles. Her parents left North Korea for Seoul and eventually the United States. She grew up in Los Angeles, had a long fashion career in New York, and then earned her MFA at the New School and turned to writing. Now she lives in New Orleans. Today we're celebrating her new book, Up Country, which has already garnered praise for its quiet power. Chin Sun Lee, welcome to The Reading Life. Thank you, Susan. I'm really excited to be here. Now, you've lived in New Orleans eight years now, almost. Mm -hmm. So what brought you here originally, and what keeps you here? Um, You can live anywhere. (laughs) So originally, I first visited New Orleans in 2004, just a vacation, and I loved it. Um, I never imagined I would live here, but it definitely enchanted me. And then uh, flash forward to 20, let's see, 15-ish. I had recently left my job in New York City and left the city to pursue possibly writing Mm full-time. And I was sort of transient for about two years, just kind of bopping between artist residencies and the homes of family and friends. I started writing a lot more, but then at some point around 2015, I recognized that I was writing a novel. And it's interesting because all the travel prior to that had been very inspirational for my writing. I was seeing, you know, different parts of America, especially uh, rural parts of America that I hadn't been exposed to before. But after a while, it got to be very disruptive because, um, you know, you're constantly like a travel agent for yourself, basically. Yeah, of course. So when I recognized I was actually writing a novel and not just short stories, um, I knew I needed to just focus. And I remember that I had come here before and I liked it. And to be honest, in a weird way, it was just I knew I needed to park myself somewhere for exactly. two years mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, and it didn't matter. You know, I, I yeah. could live anywhere for two years. Um, I just needed to be settled. So I came back and I uh, spent about a month here, I think, in the spring of 2015. And I liked it. And then I think I went to Austin, you know, to check it out after. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, No shade to Austin. But, yeah, I, I knew, like, no, it's New Orleans because... Coming from New York City especially, I was used to um, a sort of vibrancy, you know, yeah. and distinction between neighborhoods and um, just a, a little bit more racially diverse as well. Oh, and, multiculturalism. Um, yes. So I wanted that. But when I came here, it just embraced me. I, I can't explain. I don't know any other city that I could have moved to knowing 
hardly anyone as a middle-aged person. And within six months, I had a solid community here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And um, I, I love it here. I'm so glad. <laughs> so eight years later, here mm -hmm. you are. All right. But your first novel is about someplace very different. It's about set in a town in upstate New York in the Catskills. And what was that environment like for you? You actually spent time there before. Yes, and yes. so that's what drew you to it. Yes. Um, so in that period where I was transient and traveling a lot, um, a very good friend of mine, um, his parents owned an extra guest house in a very small hamlet near Durham, which is in the Catskills in Greene County. And they just let me stay there rent free, you know, for the whole summer, which was an incredibly generous gift. Support your local writer. I love <laughs> yes, it. yes, exactly. So I, I got to, you know, really understand and um, observe, you know, the particularities of that small community. Um, his mother took me under her wing and introduced me to everyone. And I just was fascinated by how, despite it being a small community or, or possibly because of it, uh, there were a lot of different social classes um, mm -hmm. who were, you know, very intermingled and got along. Um, despite the fact that they had possibly different cultural, you know, backgrounds and political affiliations and occupations. So that was really fascinating to me. And, you know, in 2014, it was still, you know, the repercussions of the 2008 recession were still very evident. And I was also, in a way, quote, homeless. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. the idea of... Um, home and stability and um, just, you know, financial security, all of that was, was sort of brewing in my head. And so I just thought, I was already writing about different settings as I was traveling, mm -hmm. but something about this particular environment really intrigued me. But that said, the initial um, first chapter, which is The Eternals, I thought it would just be a short story. Uh -huh. And then I had my dear friend Adam read it, and um, he's also a really gifted writer. And he said, you know, I think you have a, possibly a novel here if you want to expand it. <laughs> I can see. Give me more. That's the, <laughs> yeah. the refrain, give me more. Yeah. So the, you originally called this The Eternals, and yes. it's about three women in this town, Anna, Claire, and April, and the way their lives intersect. So tell us a little bit about these three women. So... I knew that in addition to the themes, you know, I've just mentioned, I wanted this to be a novel about women mm -hmm. and particularly women in midlife because that's me. And it's also very much the demographic of most readers. Right. Um, but I also feel that society has a tendency to um, sort of erase, you know, or diminish women mm -hmm. past a certain age. And I just wanted to write about an experience that people like me, women like me, could relate to, even though my characters are very different, I think, from myself. So initially, really, Claire and April were the main um, protagonists mm -hmm. or an, an antagonists also to each exactly. other. Exactly. Yes. And I, I just, I like the idea of... Um, these women who come from very different backgrounds, who may not even necessarily become friendly with each other, but to recognize their commonality, you know, as women um, struggling through challenges and to portray their resilience. 
the character of Anna was actually initially much more tertiary, um, mm -hmm. and she's definitely um, she's younger. She's much younger, and I wanted to represent a woman who is also just beginning, you know, to understand right. her agency. And, you know, she's Korean-American, as I am, but she's also an adoptee, which I am not. And I felt that because of her circumstances in the novel, um, being a part of this incredibly patriarchal, insular um, religious group, it wouldn't make sense for her to be an older, you know, character. Uh, it would make sense that she's, she's young and sort of unformed. And she's kind of a double outsider. Yes, yes. I mean, all the women are outsiders, yeah. you know. But she, her character became more and more important um, mm -hmm. through, you know, the several drafts um, of this novel that I went through. And, and definitely uh, once the book was going into publication, working with my editor, Chris Heiser, he, he definitely, you know, gave me so many helpful suggestions to deepen her character, you know, beyond just the trope mm -hmm. of the, you know, young Asian, you know, Works romantic in a coffee interest. shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about Claire. Oh, Claire. Claire, <laughs> I know. You know, she was fascinating to me she was kind of based on someone that I had seen, you know, in that community who was a little bit prickly um, and mm -hmm. abrasive. And I, I mean, characters that I may not necessarily want to get to know well in real life are interesting to me in fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yes, so true. because I think I have more empathy, you know, in my fiction. Mm -hmm. I took a sort of you could say Karen type, you know, character that most people would f feel very dismissive of. And I wanted to explore in the writing, you know, well, she's a person and she, what are the human, you know, reasons or insecurities or lackings that she has um, that perhaps, you know, makes her this way. It's funny. I, I kind of torture her in the book, I know, but I kind I, I actually grew to sort of love her, you know, in my own way. So did I, actually. Oh. I mean, I, you kind of you kind of double down on her in yeah. big ways, but yeah. we all know a Claire. Yes. yes. Everybody knows a person like that. Some so. people um, called her the Job, you know, of, of, of the course. book. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and I think that's that's maybe sort of accurate, although. Well, and yeah. she is typical of so many people who have suffered financial reversals in mm -hmm. this time. You know, money is important to her. She thinks she's secure. The rug gets pulled out from under her very quickly. Yeah. And those those passages are really powerful because so many people can identify with that. But then talk about April, who is also all of these women. I love it when women write about money. I think it's so mm. important, mm. you know, and you do that so well. So talk about April, too. Yes. Um, April represents someone who is, you know, of a different class than Claire. Claire mm -hmm. is more privileged and, um, at least in the beginning of the novel, has 
a sort of stature or good job, you know, some income, a husband, you know, all those things that you're supposed to, you know, strive for. And April's had a much harder life. But what I love about her is her flintiness. You know, she's honest. She's almost too honest to, to live in the world. And I think that that is what gets her in trouble, you know, in a way in her community. And I don't really go much into, you know, the politics or or what um, these various characters, you know, align themselves with in that Mm -hmm. way. But in my imaginings, I would, you know, well, Claire, I do um, articulate that she's very liberal and progressive. I see April as much more of a moderate, even possibly conservative person, you know. And yet there are so many similarities, you know, between her and Claire and the way that they are really just trying to make their their way, you know, through the community and just to be accepted and survive in that mm-hmm. community. But it's more than just their lives intersecting in the small town. They're intersecting in the same house. Yes. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And the house is practically a character, too. Yes. So I wonder if you'd read a little section that's that's got Claire's first glimpse of the house. Sure. Happy to. Claire had been warned, but was still unprepared for how decrepit everything was. The wood floors creaked and the walls and ceilings were dusty, with a plaster cracked in several places. Still, even with the liens on the house, they'd be getting it for less than 30000 They bought a sturdy used station wagon for only 2000 Her Uncle Carl figured it would take another 80 or so to get the house fixed right. The mortgage crisis the year before had torpedoed the housing market, but if they could get 650 for their apartment, even after paying him back, they'd still be ahead almost 300000 Carl had suggested a reasonably priced contractor who could, he said, deal with most personalities, tacit acknowledgment of her husband's mercurial moods. Sebastian would oversee the renovation, living in the house full-time while she stayed in the city during the week, going to the Midtown office where she worked as a civil attorney. She hoped it would be a temporary arrangement until she could find something closer to Caliban. Jobs were scarce, but she'd had two promising interviews with a firm in Albany. She'd likely take a salary cut, but the lower cost of living should compensate, and the firm mostly handled property law, which would be less stressful than the personal injury cases she dealt with now. She returned to the living room, deciding to wait for Sebastian before going upstairs. April was sitting in the kitchen, wrapping up dishes and newspaper. She looked up and said, So, you having buyer's remorse? Her voice was so flat, Claire couldn't tell if she was joking. Not at all. The house has good bones. Claire crossed the room and opened the door leading to the side deck. Oh, wow, look at that. What? April scraped back her chair and walked toward her. Claire looked out at a rectangular swimming pool, long drained of water and enclosed by a chain-link fence. The plaster walls were a bleached, chalky blue. A blanket of dried leaves covered the shallow end, while the rotted wooden base of a diving board jutted over the deep end. Dandelions pushed through fissures along the pool seams and corners, with taller weeds around the edge. Beyond the fence, several yards back from the pool, stood a large maple tree with wide, outstretched branches. Years ago, she gave up photography when she realized she'd never be able to earn a living from it. But there were moments like this when she missed it. It's kind of beautiful in its way, she breathed. So ruined. 
What a luxury to be able to say something's beautiful and ruined yes. in that setting. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chin Sun Lee, whose amazing debut novel is Up Country. Now, you refer to this book as a northern gothic, which I love. Mm. And we all know that in gothic novels, the house is it. You know, the house is always important. It's always a house. <laughs> so talk about, talk about what gothic means to you and how important it was to you. So, you know, even as a little kid, I, I just... I remember I loved fairy tales, and fairy tales are really dark. Always. (laughs) They're very dark. They're very moralistic. And so I think I've always had kind of a dark bent in terms of what I like to read even, and certainly Mm -hmm. um, I think how I write. I think most people are familiar with the Southern Gothic. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I think Southern Gothic tends to be um, originating more from a sense of I think the the horrors of slavery, you know, um, mm-hmm. honestly, and um, just uh, the atrocities of you know towards civil rights, and I feel like it's Southern Gothic weather-wise is there's always a sort of sultry, you know, heat and moodiness. Right. Northern Gothic, I think, stems more from you know the days of like Calvinism. There's um, there's a coldness, you know, in yeah. the um, the region and in the people. And when I first started writing this novel, I wasn't necessarily thinking of it as a gothic. Mm-hmm. And the house was kind of creepy, but not nearly as much. But in you know further drafts and getting responses from my initial readers, I definitely was encouraged to make more of the house. And in a way, it's, it's kind of a ghost story, but there aren't yeah. any actual ghosts. You know, you don't know if the very, very, you know, I think subtle hints of supernaturalism are are um, simply, you know, uh, an extension of the characters' imaginations. You know, as they're observing um, what happens in the house. But you had brought up earlier how all three women are also connected to the house, and I won't give away exactly um, all the reasons why, but each of them have some kind of significant. You know, event that that right. is tied into the house, even though they none of them ever actually, you know, certainly live there together. And and I think there's only a few instances where even Claire and April are in the house together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but everybody knows what it's like to walk into your house and smell something, mm-hmm. like that smell of rust. Where is that? Where is that coming from? All those little tropes, you know, and I love it. You start off that section, Claire had been warned, (laughs) you know, which is how it goes. The other thing that struck me about this, I was just thinking about this last night, is that these women walk everywhere. And I was thinking, Mm. women walking by a road. I mean, it goes back to Jane Eyre, Mm. Faulkner, all these writers, you know, it's really, it's really interesting. So it's what I will tell you what's interesting, too, is to hear comments like that from from readers now that the book is starting to go out Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, Some I mean, you bringing that up, 
it makes me think of the fact that you know a lot of it is so unconscious you know yeah. when what comes out um, I absolutely you know read all of those authors that you mentioned and love them you know and um, the atmospheric qualities of those books um, even though I wasn't necessarily thinking oh you know these people are gonna walk a lot frankly but in the country you you do walk <laughs> you do you walk by the you highway you walk on the highway you know um i enjoyed walking yeah it was walk by the creek <laughs> yeah yeah but there's a lot of there's so much darkness in this book it must have been challenging at times to turn your heart to that well actually no <laughs> oh good <laughs> um and i and what's been interesting for me is to now you know be getting the res- the feedback that um that it's so dark you know um and i i guess it is but it's so strange because i know my, my my personality is is i'm not a dark sure. person yeah you know um but i think all of the sort of subterranean fears and anxieties and existential dread probably that i carry um just as a human in this world mm-hmm. it goes in my writing you know it's it's that's where i work through those things or examine them, and it's cathartic in a way, you know? Well, that's why I think you can pack so much into it. In addition to the gothic nature of this story, those, the elements of the supernatural, you have elements of eco-fiction. Mm-hmm, You're talking yes. about class, politics, all sorts of things. You have really made this dense world so that there's so much to talk about and think about as you read this book. It never lets you down. Well, thank you. You know, something else comes along. I'm curious if you think that's because you made this turn to writing later in life. I'm, if it gave you more confidence or, I or think, more to say, period. Yes. You know, I talk about that because you were in fashion for 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a life. Yeah, professional yeah. life. It was it was a whole life. I do agree that the fact that I'm older, more seasoned, experienced woman has infiltrated certainly, you know, just all the themes of the novel. And I don't know that I felt necessarily confident it was my first novel. Sure. Um, I learned a lot in writing this novel and it went through many iterations. I mean, the core of the story was always there. But the deepening that you mentioned, absolutely, you know, I was helped in that regard by readers, by editors, and my agent, and particularly, you know, Chris Heiser, my, my, the editor at Unnamed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my fashion background, I don't miss it at all. <laughs> but I will say I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I, as a young person, was able to travel you know, to places I, I never would have been able to afford on my own. I traveled to so many places. I worked with people. I managed people, you know. So that absolutely deepens, you know, your understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And so for that, you know, I am grateful. I did pay special attention to the clothes in this book. Oh. Because of that. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, I don't think the... I, in this book, my fashion sense didn't really, you know, influence because Anna was the one where oh, it's yes. shown through most brightly. Well, the Eternals, you know, they have a look. They have, yes, absolutely, they have a sort of classic, you know, Mennonite or, or Amish type of older, you know, world clothing, and uh, I think it's particularly marked when she goes through a period where, you know, 
she um, has to change, you know, mm-hmm. the circumstances of of uh, dressing like an eternal. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. I did have one moment where I really thought of Shirley Jackson, and I'm sure you know oh, which moment that is. Oh, that's such a cute compliment. <laughs> oh, my God. I love her. So, yes. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you. The life we imagine is rarely the life we get in yeah. this book and yeah. in so many others. Yeah. We've been talking with Chin Sun Lee, and you can meet her when she appears in conversation with Tiana Nobile Tuesday, November 7th at 7 at Studio 633, 633 Carondelet Street, sponsored by Octavia Books. This is a ticketed event. Chin Sun, thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. It was such a pleasure. For me, too. on tap in the literary life this week. Jonathan Klein, poet, playwright, storyteller, and visual artist, reads from his new novella, Standing at the Gate, Saturday, November 4th at 2 at the Old Metairie Library on Metairie Road. Three poets, Sean Monroe, Martha McFerrin, and Benjamin Morris, will join him in reading their work. Chin Sun Lee appears in conversation with Tiana Nobile and discusses and signs her novel, Upcountry, Tuesday, November 7th at 7 at Studio 633, 633 Carondelet Street. Sponsored by Octavia Books, this is a ticketed event. Journalist and literary critic Elizabeth Winkler, author of Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature, leads an international panel of academics in a discussion of the controversial topic of Shakespeare's identity. Wednesday, November 8th, at 7 p.m. at the Stone Auditorium in Woldenburg Arts Center at Tulane University. John Lawrence discusses and signs Louisiana Lens, photographs from the historic New Orleans collection. Thursday, November 9th at 6 at Octavia Books. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.